0: Hello, welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Bradley Morgan, and I'm joined today by my guest, Stephen Hayden. Stephen is a cultural critic at UpRocks, an author whose previous titles include This Isn't Happening and Your Favorite Band is Killing Me, and who has also written for publications such as Rolling Stone, Salon, and The Washington Post. Steve's latest book is Long Road, Pearl Jam and the Soundtrack of a Generation, and is published by Hachette Books. Stephen, thanks for joining me today.
1: Hey, thanks for having me
0: can you briefly share with us what your book is about?
1: Yeah. So my book is a, um, I guess I would call it like a first person music critic slash fan examination of, of Pearl Jam's career and trying to place them into a larger context of just like what they represented in the nineties, what they represent, uh, in rock music overall. Uh, and, uh, just kind of covering like the last 30 years that encompassed their career and uh, all the changes that have happened in culture in that time, you know, like using this band as a lens really to talk about that.
0: So each of your chapter uh, for your book, there's a song that serves as the central theme for that chapter. And we won't talk about all the songs here, but we'll discuss some, but first I want to get a sense of what your approach was to selecting the songs that you chose to feature for those chapters.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I, I've used this structure before by my, my, my second book, Twilight of the gods is is structured like a, a mixtape and, you know, each chapter is named after a song and the whole thing is structured like a double album. And I don't know, there's just something in me, I think that wants to make albums and I have no musical talent, but I can write books. So I want to make books that feel like albums. So I think that's why I adopted that strategy again here with the Pearl Jam book and you know it was really about taking songs that I felt like were you know like I wasn't writing chapters about songs it was really about taking a song that I felt could be a launching point for talking about an aspect of, of, of Pearl Jam's career so like for instance there's a chapter on the song Better Man which is one of the most famous Pearl Jam songs and Really, that chapter is a way to talk about Eddie Vedder's adolescence and also his relationship with the other members of Pearl Jam, as well as what I think is a really interesting aspect of Eddie Vedder's songwriting, which is that he writes a lot from the uh, perspective of women. And uh, so there's that. I, I talk a lot about Tom Petty in that chapter because Tom Petty also wrote a lot of songs from the perspective of women. And I think that there was a Tom Petty influence a bit on better man. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's just a way to, you know, again, my goal as a, as a music critic is always to make my writing as much as I can feel like listening to a record, you know, cause that, that's when I feel like music criticism is at its best, you know, cause music criticism tends to, you know, maybe be a little overly academic, Maybe a little overly navel-gazing, you know. And you know, you're writing about something as visceral and as exciting as as music. You know, it it ought to have the qualities of that. You know, so I'm not saying I achieve that every time, but that's always something that I'm going for in my writing. So as much as I can make my book feel like an album, you know, if I could as close as I can get to that, uh, you know, like I, I I'll feel like it's it's successful if it at least gets. Part of the way there.
0: I really like that analogy of trying to write an album. So let's talk about the first song on that album. Your first chapter opens up with a song called Falling Down, and you write about a story of Pearl Jam's performance at Red Rocks in 1995. Could you tell us more about that show and about this song, Falling Down?
1: Yeah, I mean, in this book, you know, one of the things I I really wanted to do going into it was to explore the live music aspect of what Pearl Jam does, because I really feel like when we talk about bands or artists, you know, we tend to focus on albums or we focus on like hit singles, you know, the recorded music discographies, and we don't really focus on the concert aspect of it. And with certain bands, I feel like if if you don't look at the live music, uh, side of the equation you're really missing a big part of the story and i think with pearl jam uh, specifically you know if i was going to make a case for them being one of the great american rock bands ever it really wouldn't be tied much to their albums it would be about them as a live band because i really do think that they're one of the great live american rock bands certainly like arena rock bands uh you know they they, they play in that kind of venue I think as well as anybody and so like when I was opening the book you know there was the live music aspect and also just wanted to open on what I felt like was a dramatic turning point in the band's history which you know if you're looking at them in 1995 you know this is them still you know being embroiled in all the Ticketmaster controversy you know which was a big thing that really kind of sucked a lot of energy out of the band in the mid 90s uh you you have internal strife in the band like where Eddie Vedder isn't feeling great about being in this ginormous rock band and you know you have the other guys in Pearl Jam feeling like well is Eddie Vedder ashamed of us like we're traveling by plane to every gig and he's traveling in a van and it's like we're a big enough band that we can travel by plane. Like who does this guy think he is all these tensions going on. And I I just felt like that particular performance, it just crystallized a lot of things that I I wanted to talk about that this was a band that was so successful from, you know, the jump really like with their first record and all these videos on MTV, they're a big radio band and how, Over the course of the 90s, they really reinvented themselves as this really sort of like cult band that could play arenas, you know, more like a Grateful Dead type band. And it's like, how do you make that transition from being a band that is so reliant on MTV exposure to a band that's more of like a grassroots type situation? And it just felt like that show uh, was a great place to start. And that song... You know, they've only played that song once, you know, and it's a song like if you listen to the recording of it, it's not fully developed, but it feels like the kind of song that could have become a hit if they had gone into a studio with a producer and, you know, shaped it a little bit, honed it. But they decided not to do that. They just played it once and then they never played it again. And it seemed like that was a very conscious decision at that moment in time like we're not gonna take this song that could be a hit we're just gonna play it once it's gonna be this special thing because that's the thing that we do now we don't have radio hits we create these moments in time that people remember so i don't know i just felt like there was there there was so many things about that particular performance that i felt like it just expressed what i wanted to write about in the book
0: You touch upon a lot of great ideas in terms of um, the albums and the songs and the live performances themselves, as you had mentioned, but you also kind of dive into what Pearl Jam represented as a generational touchstone. And I want to talk about that 1995 era as a moment of time, because when they played that show, things were, were looking very differently for the band. They had this monumental debut in 1991 with 10, but... Things were changing because something you say there was a backlash fueled by hangs up hang ups by two different generations. What was happening with Pearl Jam at this time and why?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting in the nineties because you know, Generation X is not a very big generation. So, like in terms of just like numbers of people. So, you know, you had this emerging generation that had their own kind of music, but the baby boomers were still really prominent. Uh, in the 90s particularly like the first part of the 90s and you know you had a magazine like Rolling Stone for instance which was still uh, you know the fiefdom of like Jan Winter and he was very much a person who I think was inclined to unfavorably compare 90s rock stars to like the 60s rock stars so like someone like Eddie Better was always going to be inferior to John Lennon or Pete Townsend or, you know, all those great original classic rock heroes. And then you have Generation X, all the hangups. And look, it's always weird when you talk about generational uh, sort of generalities. You know, you don't want to paint too broad of a brush. But it's just true that at the time, I think that people of that generation in the nineties were inclined to look at whatever was popular at that moment in time as being inferior. You know, it was sort of the last time, like where the underground was fetishized over the mainstream. And of course that would quickly fall away. I mean, it's amazing with the nineties, because when you talk about the nineties, like when I think about the nineties, I think about like the early nineties as being the nineties. And it's because, uh you know i got i i i'm technically a generation x person although like i'm a young generation x person that could technically qualify as like an old millennial probably in 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 a way but you know like the late 90s are so different compared to the early 90s i mean that's when you have new metal you have teen pop and you already see the development of this attitude which is very common now which is you know, sort of this, like, disdain for the puritanical attitude that was more prominent in the early 90s about the mainstream, you know, or about selling out. You know, like, when people talk about selling out now, you know, they just, like, roll their eyes about it. It just seems so antiquated and, uh, you know, something that only the most insufferable people would care about. But you know, there was this idea that like, it wasn't really about selling out. It was about not buying in, you know, that. And this is something I related to at the time, like as a, as a teenager, because like a lot of mainstream culture, I thought was really stupid and vapid. And here were bands that were really successful, but they were critiquing that type of culture. And I really related to that. And that's, and in a way I still relate to that. You know, you know, I wish that there were more artists now that, you know, were more critical of just things that are popular, you know, it's like I'm not a snob like there's a lot of popular things that I love, but it just seems like there's a real reluctance to criticize anything that's like really successful now, you know. It's like, if it's successful, then it's worth taking seriously. That's kind of the default critical perspective now. And again, like like in the early 90s, that didn't exist. That was kind of like the last time like where that wasn't fashionable.
0: So one of the criticisms that you discuss in your book about Gen X is that they viewed... Pearl Jam with a lot of skepticism because they were very successful and so they believed they were inauthentic, namely its singer Eddie Vedder. Was the level of success the reason why they viewed them as inauthentic or were there other reasons?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously not everyone viewed them as inauthentic because they sold millions of records. So, you know, I, 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 I don't think it's necessarily that everyone viewed them that way. In a lot of ways, this is more of like a retrospective view. I feel like when people that loved Pearl Jam when they were teenagers grew up, that there was an inclination to dismiss a lot of that stuff as things that, they, that oh, that's something I liked in high school. And it's not really relevant to what I'm doing now or what, or what I like now. And uh, I, I mean, I think it is related to like how successful it was. Um, I also think that there's something specific about what Pearl Jam did where you know they had this aesthetic where it was like 70s arena rock married to like a very sort of earnest view of like what rock music could be you know like pearl jam and eddie better spe- like specifically had almost like a like a 1960s view of like what rock music was capable of being that this was like a a force that could actually affect social change and you know it's interesting because you know like in the book i write about the distinction between alternative rock and indie rock which doesn't seem relevant at all now i feel like people just throw all 90s rock music into a bucket whether it's pavement or nirvana or smashing pumpkins or silver jews or whatever it's like all 90s music but at the time in the 90s i think that the essential difference between alternative music and indie music was that a lot of the alternative bands did have this retro view of like the power of rock music that rock music actually could be This force in the world that was positive, whereas indie musicians at the time, I think, were more jaded. And it was like a little embarrassing to be that earnest about being in a band and that like you're going to like convince people to vote for like the right politician or that you're going to like mobilize people to fight against the man, you know, which is a very 60s idea. You know, like, my sense is that, like, people like Stephen Malkmus, like, were not really engaged in that kind of idea, whereas, like, someone like Eddie Vedder, I think, really, you know, sincerely believed that, like, well, I am a person of a certain stature in the culture, I have this platform, so why wouldn't I say, you know, write pro-choice on my arm, during my MTB Unplugged performance, you know, as a protest in favor of abortion rights, or why wouldn't I use my position to, uh, you know, strike against Ticketmaster? Uh, I mean, that's a very sort of classic idea that I think was not cool at all, really.
0: One thing I read in your book about criticism and inauthenticity I thought was interesting was that how it was much larger than Pearl Jam, um, with the entire music scene of Seattle being called into question once that whole grunge period became mainstream. I'm a little bit younger. I was born in the late 80s, so I wasn't uh, really cognizant of what was happening at that time. So I was wondering if you can explore that a little bit more for me in the politics of punk purity that was happening as a result of this conversation.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, again, like, this was really, like, the last era, like, where a lot of this stuff was relevant, but, you know, in the early 90s, I think there was this, uh, you know, sort of anxiety of influence type conversation going on where, you know, like, with a band like Pearl Jam, for instance, I think, like, where they got knocked in a lot of circles was the fact that they were... A band that I think uh, philosophically was aligned like with what punk was, certainly in in terms of the sort of do it yourself ethos and you know trying to behave like an ethical manner, you know, as a as a big rock band. But like their influences were, I mean, pretty clearly, you know, like seventies arena rock bands. It was the Who and Led Zeppelin, and I mean, I think there's definitely some like, Springsteen in there all the way down the line to like bands like bad company you know you can hear that and you know and you know stone gossard has been pretty open about talking about being like a teenage metalhead you know so there's like iron maiden and judas priest getting in integrated in there along with bands like the ramones and you know jeff amet was you know a big punk guy in uh the 80s uh seattle scene but you know they weren't like a pure punk band you know they had I mean I think all the guys in that band loved punk but they also loved a lot of stuff that wasn't punk and there were just like a lot of influences I think in the stew with Pearl Jam and like a lot of the grunge bands that just like were not sort of like the the traditional fashionable you know rock critic approved influences so you know when you have people like Robert Crisco writing about the grunge bands and, you know, Pearl Jam specifically, it, it it does come from this more sort of, I think snooty East coast perspective of like, you know, is this a band that would have played CBGBs in 1975? You know, probably not. So then you end up being denigrated because you don't live up to that kind of standard. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think at the time that was, that was, that was a pretty big deal. Of course that didn't impact Pearl Jam at all commercially, if anything, I think like the more sort of traditional rock band aspects of what they were doing in combination with the more kind of philosophical punk rock accents you know that that combination that in the book Matt Cameron describes as punk rock arena rock, you know, where it kind of sounds like arena rock, but it has again the philosophical bent of like more of a punk band. You know, that was a really appealing thing, I think, for a lot of people, like when Pearl Jam first really came out.
0: You know, I, I think it's really interesting. All the, the, A lot of the criticisms and comparisons to other bands, even, you know, even if it's a criticism or something to praise Pearl Jam with, um, there was something in your book I found really interesting. And you note that um, rock culture had been building towards a band like Pearl Jam for a long time. And I was wondering if you could tell me what you meant by that.
1: Well, I think just like what I said that there was, I you know I, I really think with Pearl Jam, if they had put out ten five years earlier, it would have been more of like a cult record. It would have been more in line like with what with like what the early James addiction records were. And if they put it out five years later, it would not have been nearly as commercial because, people would have expected them to have a DJ on stage. You know, <laughs> they would have had to have been like more of like a rap rock element to what they were doing. I, I I think specifically, you know, that record coming out in 1991, I think there was just the feeling at the time that, you know, there was all of this energy coming from the American indie rock underground of the eighties, all these bands that were great, but were never quite, Hugely successful, you know, The Replacements, Husker do, all those bands, and it was just waiting for a moment like where there could be a band that could tap into like what the like what the underground was doing, but at the same time could also deliver what people wanted from a more accessible mainstream band, and Nirvana tapped into that. Would never mind, obviously, but I think Pearl Jam even more than the Nirvana was like really uniquely constructed to capitalize on just all of these different things coming together that were existing in the early nineties. And uh, that on top of just writing great songs, you know, it just really, it all just came together. I mean, I think that's true of any great band or great artist. you know, there's the things you can control, you know, you, you write great songs, you, you work as hard as you can on the road to be a great live act, but then there's things that are just uh, out of your control. Uh, The, the, the sort of preparation meeting the moment type thing that defines like what luck is, you know? And I think that's what Pearl Jam had at that time. And I think that's really why they were able to be as popular as they were at the time.
0: So on their popularity, at the height of it, you're you're growing up in the Midwest and you write that Pearl Jam connected most profoundly with kids living in the Midwest, despite no knowledge of indie music scenes. What was your experience with Pearl Jam as a kid?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the, the thing with alternative rock in general was that it was a, uh, it was a gateway to an, to another world that a lot of kids did not, know existed really at the time um because again there was this great american indie rock you know the michael Azerod, our band could be your life years you know that existed in the 80s you know sonic youth minute men uh big black you know black flag all those great bands um but you know if you lived in a town like i lived in you didn't necessarily know about that stuff the only way you learned about it was hearing a band like Pearl Jam or Nirvana or Soundgarden and getting into those bands and you'd read their interviews and they would talk about those other bands. And that's how you got into it. And it really was, you know, like reading interviews, I think with artists was such a big deal in the early nineties before the internet when you you couldn't just do a Google search and, learn about all this stuff you know like if you didn't live in a town that had the cool college radio station or you know the indie music you know the the indie record store you know it really was up to rock stars to tell you like oh yeah like i love all these other bands and maybe you haven't heard of them yet so that was the double impact of a lot of these groups that it wasn't just their own music that was great but because they were So successful and they had these platforms that they could actually tell you about other stuff that was really great and again like in the pre-internet world like that was the way you learned about stuff so yeah in a way like with a lot of these artists it's like their interviews were almost as valuable as their records you know like that really made a big impact
0: what what about the interviews really did you gravitate towards was there a particular moment early on in your fandom that you're reading about them and what they're saying that something really clicked with you
1: i don't know i mean I, not really i mean i think again it would just be just you know you see something on mtv and like you know pearl you know eddie better talk about the frogs or something you know like just things like that and it would be like, oh, what's that? Or, uh, you know, and with Pearl Jam, it was also um, not just indie music, but it was just like classic rock history, you know. Well, I mean, they were covering the Dead Boys, but, you know, they'd cover like rocking in the Free World, you know, things like that. I just feel like in that media world, like where things were so much more tightly controlled, I think that any gesture that these bands did that was outside of themselves and it was toward like a larger music world, it just had like a, a seismic impact, you know, uh, you know, like the butterfly effect, like with a lot of these bands, you know, like, like Nirvana, like Nirvana, having the meat puppets on MTV unplugged. I mean, that I'd never heard the meat puppets before that, you know, like what a great gesture to this wonderful, American rock band that originated in the eighties, but never really had like a mainstream moment. And here they are like with one of the biggest bands in the world playing on MTV, you know, I mean, just think there's so many things like that, that, um, you know, I, I think really had an impact on a lot of people.
0: So this is a band that you discover at the right time, at the right moment for you growing up. And, you know, it's interesting because that's how a lot of bands are for a lot of people. Um, and so it's not necessarily interesting for me to think about, you know, what would it be like if you kind of discovered it later, but has your relationship with other artists who might have come before you or come later, your love and discovery of them, has that kind of given you more insight to your appreciation of Pearl Jam and coming up with them as a, as a contemporary band for you?
1: Well, Pearl Jam is a band that you didn't really discover in the early 90s. It'd be like saying, like, I discovered Taylor Swift now. You know, like, it's so ubiquitous that it's not something you really find. It's sort of like you open the door and it's there. Um, I do think that I am appreciative of when I was a teenager because um, it was a time in music history where you had all these great modern bands, but then you also had like a lot of the older bands that were still kind of around like Pink Floyd was still putting out records in the nineties. You know, uh, Neil Young had a great period in the nineties. A lot of the like current rock bands were connected to the continuum of rock in a way that like, they're not, well, I mean, it, it still exists now, but, like, it was just different. Like, it, like the 60s weren't as far away, and the 70s weren't as far away as as it is now. It just, so it, it felt like more sort of, even though, like, as a kid, I felt like Led Zeppelin were ancient, you know, even though they really weren't. Like, they'd broken up in 1980, and I started listening to them in, in, in 1990, which isn't that different than, like, becoming a pavement fan in 2010 or something, you know, but like to me, like Led Zeppelin was like ancient, but like, I loved Led Zeppelin. Um, But cause you know, the thing with me, uh, you know, when I was a kid was that I'd loved so many bands that were modern, but I was also, I loved classic rock too. So it was like a simultaneous exploration going on where, I loved, you know, Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Pavement and yada, 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 all the great 90s bands, but I also loved Zeppelin and the Beatles and The Who. And I was listening to all that stuff too. Um, And that's definitely had a big impact on how I listen to music, you know. Uh, So I don't know, it's interesting. I mean, I'm just kind of thinking through this stuff as I'm talking about it. In a way, maybe it's not that different now than it was then just because the internet flattens time so much you know like because like when i was getting into music you still had to go to a record store you had to like invest in buying cds if you want to really get into an artist whereas now like if you you know it's really easy to listen to any era of music so maybe it's the same for a kid now who loves rock and loves you know what wet leg or something and they want to then listen to the clash you know and it's just all exists simultaneously i don't know this is a very rambling answer i don't have a succinct answer to that um i don't know to me again like i think the bands at that time they 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 were new but they also felt connected i think to the history of rock in a way that felt more immediate maybe now than a lot of bands do. And it, it, so that was certainly an influence on how I listened to a lot of this stuff.
0: No, absolutely. And it's such a great answer, um, especially when we consider how media technology plays a role now and how people access music. There's a different like level of commodification with that. You know, you know, arguably you could say there's less of a time and a personal investment with it, but you know,
1: Yeah, you know, I I always try not to be too judgmental with that because I feel like um, when you're you're young and you're discovering so many things for the first time, it's just so monumental. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really matter, like, what you're hearing. You know, everything sounds incredible, like when you're 19. And uh, so... I would never want to present a situation where it's like, well, kids today don't feel that kind of connection to music that I felt when I was that age. Because I, I do feel like they probably do. You know, I mean, I'm sure they do. Because again, it, it's all about your perspective at a certain age. I, I mean, the thing with me as a music critic, unfortunately, I haven't had to fight against this too hard. I think that a lot of people, when they get older, you know, they start looking at everything through the prism of things that they liked when they were young and it's always worse. You know, it's like, well, the nineties were great because that's when I was young and now things are terrible. And, uh, I, I, I try to resist that as much as I can because, you know, there's things about the nineties that were terrible, you know, that like were, that were shitty. And, uh, along with things that I think that are great. Um, but uh you know there's still things that i'm excited about now like i mean again like if you had told me like when i was 14 that you could go on a computer and hear every song that ever existed for the most part i would have just had my mind blown but at the same time i'm glad that i didn't have that at that age because i feel like i was able to uh have adventures with finding music that you can't really have now you know that idea of like i read about you know the velvet underground and two years later i'm actually able to listen to them because my local record store finally has a copy of loaded you know which is something that like happened to me as a kid you know like as a teenager you know, I, I'm really kind of grateful for that because it's like I had to pretend what the Velvet Underground sounded like. And, like, Loaded doesn't really even sound like the early Velvet Underground records. Uh, anyway, I'm rambling here. But, yeah, I mean, and this is, like, another theme of the book, I think, like, just, like, how... Time and perspective changes how you listen to things. I'm always fascinated by that. That's like a theme, I think, of like a lot of my books and will probably continue to be so because I I think you can't overrate the importance of like hearing something at a certain age and then hearing it at a different age and just how that changes, how that music, how it just changes like what that music is.
0: No, I really love that answer. And and certainly we can't begrudge how younger generations discover music, especially when they have that technology. I mean, there's interviews with Paul McCartney saying that, oh, if they had the ability to pirate music when they were younger, they definitely would have done that. And it goes back into our earlier conversation, like authenticity and selling out, where think about you know how poorly artists are compensated for Spotify. You know, It means a lot to an up-and-coming band to be featured in a commercial where they can actually make money because otherwise you know trying to find their music across streaming services which is how people discover things they're not really getting revenue that's actually reflective of you know people the number of people listening
1: yeah i mean look there's no question that the economics of the business have changed and that pretty much short-circuited the sellout conversation like when it became clear that maybe the only way a band can make money is by being in a commercial. So like only like the biggest jerk out there, you know, is going to complain about an artist doing that. I do think though that in the case of a band like Pearl Jam, that there is a more sort of like, I think nuanced way of looking at this where, and this is something that I do mourn a little bit in the modern music scene where I just don't see a lot of skepticism, towards mainstream culture you know what i mean like i think one thing that i was really drawn to as a teenager toward like the alternative rock that i was listening to and not just alternative rock but you know things like the simpsons and like late night with david letterman you know because i write about this in the book i think like comedy was really at the forefront of poking fun at how stupid mainstream culture is and uh how crass it is and you know, I feel like now, yeah, you know, I just don't see as much skepticism of that. I feel like there's more of an equation with, like, well, if it's selling really well, then then it's good. You know, like, Marvel movies are important because they do really well at the box office, you know. And, like, we, if you're going to make fun of this, then you're really just, like, a snob. You know, and you you're not really clued into like what people actually want. Like I feel like that perspective has been legitimized in a way that I that the '90s kid in me finds to be a little disgusting. You know, like I wish that there was more of a pushback against that because, yeah, it's stupid to chide artists for making money that the way the only way that they can. You know, like if they're doing great work, who cares if they're in a commercial? Like, yeah, like I'm not going to go to the wall for that. But I, but I do feel like there's a lot of just shitty culture that <laughs> gets a, a pass now because it's successful and or it makes a lot of money. And when I see that, the 90s kid in me feels like I wish that, We could bring back some of the skepticism because I do think that that's healthy, you know, at least like in critical circles, you know, because if music critics or culture critics aren't railing against that, then there's really no one who's going to rail against it. You know, there used to be the idea that like, yeah, popular audiences are going to embrace crap, but like critics will rail against it. Like we'll be, Sort of like the devil's advocate of culture, and uh, there's just been less and less incentive to be that devil's advocate now, and now it's more about sort of justifying people loving crap. And uh, so anyway, I don't know, I'm getting on a soapbox here, I don't want to rant too much about this, lest I sound like an old man, but I, you know, that aspect of the discourse, I feel like. We could learn something from the 90s, maybe in that respect.
0: Soapboxes are incredibly welcome. You know, the challenge for me is just to find out how to tie it back into your book. And I think I have. So, with the skepticism of mainstream culture, I think the term I've seen used, you know, is poptimism, like how a lot of these writers will just write very positive commentary on whatever's happening. And hearing your comments about that skepticism, I'm thinking, um, You know, as both a Pearl Jam fan and a Gen Xer, albeit a younger one, were there points that you shared, you know, the generational and cultural hangups about Pearl Jam when you were growing up in the 90s?
1: Not when I was growing up, but I mean, certainly, you know, I write about this in the book that like by the end of the 90s, I thought that Pearl Jam was was finished. You know, like in 98, I saw them for the first time live which was only, you know, seven years after their first record came out. But, like, seven years, it just felt like a really long time. And it was because I was young, you know, I was, like, from 14 to 21. There was a real feeling of, like, okay, this is something I liked in high school. Uh, and I'm seeing it for, like, the last time. And it's going to be over. So, I think that experience really is probably not that unusual. I think a lot of people felt like that, not just about Pearl jam, but like probably like a lot of alternative rock at the time. And, you know, that was just, you know, sort of exacerbated by just how much music had changed by the end of the nineties. I mean, again, like early nineties versus late nineties is such a big, it's like two different decades. And, you know, like I think about like recent decades of music and you could see developments. I mean, like in in the 2010s, I think, you know, you've got like Dubstep and Skrillex at the beginning of the 2010s and then at the end of the 2010s it's like way more sort of like chilled out music where people are just I guess taking a lot of downers in like the back half of the 2000s and it just, music just kind of goes in a totally different direction. So you can see that, you know, maybe that kind of division is is common in a lot of decades. But in the 90s, I don't know, it just feels especially dramatic. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think I felt that way at the end of the 90s, and it really wasn't until, like, about 10 years later that I got curious about reinvestigating Pearl Jam, and it was really through, like, the live bootlegs that they had put out that gave me another entry point into the band, you know, because I think the records, in a way, as good as they are, as much as like I like a lot of those records, they were just so ingrained culturally in my mind that the bootlegs just seemed fresher, you know, and the and the live stuff just seemed like it was like a different entry point into the band. And it just reinvigorated my interest in Pearl Jam, and you know that brings us up to the modern day. I mean, I think that was really the beginning, like really did, kind of digging deep and in, deeper into the live stuff. Because I really think that the live material that they, that you know, like the, the bootlegs and just like them playing all the shows that they've done, that uh, to me feels like the beginning of an argument for them being a great American rock band the live stuff, because I think they're so good and it just gets elevated while their material, when they play live.
0: Steven, thanks for joining me today. This has been a great conversation. My name is Bradley Morgan, and you've been listening to new books and music with my guest today, Steven Hayden. His latest book is long road, Pearl jam and the soundtrack of a generation and is published by Hachette books.